Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here in Cleveland, with the new head coach of the Cavaliers, John Beeline. And we talk about a 44-year journey from a high school coach in upstate New York through every level of NCAA basketball, junior college, Division 3, 2, and 1, a dozen years at the University of Michigan, where he led the Wolverines to two Final Fours, an NCAA championship game. And now at 66 years old, the NBA. A great visit with one of his generation's great coaches, John Beeline. Training camp practice is over for the Cavs, John. So I'm guessing you've got some recruits to call, <laughs> right? Compliance, <laughs> me- meeting with compliance, <laughs> academic people. Oh. Um what has it been like now that the ball's bouncing, you're in the gym yeah. with your players, and you're closer to what it, you know yeah. it's going to start feeling like day to day here? Yeah, I think that I'm working the same amount of hours, uh, but I'm more, it's a different hours, and it's all basketball. And I've really been able to concentrate. And I think the other thing, Woj, that happened is when we started in October – you don't go through a September like you usually go through where you're, you're in a hotel room, you know, four days a week. Then you're hosting fo- recruits on weekends. You do have a little bit of time to get charged up for the season. And that was, that was attractive to me in this change in lifestyle. They, I know it's 82 games, but it's probably only 60 practices, right? And, and instead of, you know, 37 games and 125 practices. And then it's, it's, well, as soon as the year got over last year, we lost in Sweet 16. I went on the road for like 28 out of 30 days. I was on the road, you know, just trying to figure out where what, what's the next home I needed to get into. So that college game's been so good to me. I'm not complaining about one bit. But this was the right time in my life to make this change where I coach basketball right now, build a culture, be around this incredible organization. You know, Billy Donovan said something to me, um, so maybe somewhere in his first year after he had left Florida and gone to Oklahoma City, that in college, you spent so much time talking to and, you know, courting and uh, trying to get to know players you were never going to coach. And that's where all your time was. And you spent so much time mm-hmm. in people, play, players you weren't going to get. Where, whereas in the NBA, you could invest your time. I remember at that time, it was a summer. He was out at UCLA um, working with Russell Westbrook in the gym with his guys. Yeah. And and... And the other thing he had said to me too initially was when practice ends in college, what's the first thing you do? You got to go grab your phone. your phone. Get your phone. Who did I, what did I miss? And in that sense, it's liberating, right? No, it really is. It was, uh, you know, it was down the stretch. <laughs> and I, and I mean this in a good way, but, and because I don't want to knock this out. This, I did not come to the Cavaliers to escape from college basketball, <laughs> but it was really compelling when I first got my fr- first call from the Cavaliers, you know, it was in early May. And one of my assistants, Luke Yaklich, a tremendous guy, says, hey, coach, don't forget, we got to load about 50 names on your phone because June 15th is coming up and you can text sophomores. <laughs> and I just looked <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Thanks for that great news <laughs> that I get to text 16-year-olds here in, in days later. So it's all good. It's, it's, like I said, so good to us. But at the same time, I was able to this time to find, you know, just – we spent so much time with with my assistant coaching staff in September and the team, but more the coaching staff of how we build this instead of saying to my assistant, well, where where are they all tonight? Who's he seeing? And then you didn't get to have those those meaningful times as they've taught me some of the NBA language, all these things. It's really you're more prepared for a season than you probably were in college. John, your priorities in trying to understand – what you needed to understand now and what of yours that you were going to bring that absolutely translated where you had to adjust. And you said like the language of the league, the yeah. verbiage, the knowing once you get into an 82 season, the lack yeah, of preparation, yeah. the games yeah. keep coming. When you started to sort of, you, you coached in summer league and you had your staff together there. What were the first couple things where you said, I think this is the most important thing I've got to understand? Yeah, um, I, I think I, and I got um, some advice from several people on this, is that this is a very transiently, you know, it's not as much as college, really, in, in some respects, but you're, you might get a trade in the middle of the year. 
you might get a guy that it, you only have seven days to 13 days for training camp to get people's ready. And uh, you can't have a completely different language than the rest of the league. So what, what I try to do is change our language to it's the same thing. You know, what I call a, a bullet, they might call a step up. What I call a pistol, it's a side ball screen. And so I just, rather than have 15 guys change to my language, I change to their language. But if they, Woj, if they didn't have a name for it, I'm using my old name. Because I virtually had names for everything so that people could, uh, we could learn it. I think it's a great way of learning. They associate action. There's usually a story behind it. And then they don't forget it going forward. We would debate it at several, what are we going to call it? Because I would go, okay, what did Utah call it? What did Memphis call it? What did you call it here last year when I mm-hmm. talked to my front bench guys? And they'd probably give me three different names. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, so it's not universal there. What fits best? best? What can we learn the best? So it's worked well, uh, but that was the biggest thing, I think. John, Cleveland was not the first NBA team you had talked to who had called through the years. And, you know, you the Detroit situation was interesting a couple of years ago because, number one, you know, you didn't have to move. Mm-hmm. It was geographically, yeah. but it was a very different team in a very different place. Very veteran laden, a team that, you know, with the cap, like this was mm-hmm. going to be your roster and a lot. Cleveland was different. If you wanted to build a program and teach and, and maybe do it from the ground up, this was the one for that, right? Yeah, this was the most appealing. And again, I wasn't leaving a great place like the University of Michigan to go and just be an NBA coach. That was not the goal. It was if the right situation came along, um, that was really appealing to me. And and the other thing that was really appealing is, you know, I grew up in this the Buffalo area. I've been in Michigan. You know, I've been in this Rust Belt, Lake Ontario. The changes. I, I love it. I love it. And my four children are fairly close by. So that was another thing. If you're going to go to the NBA. This is the situation, but it was what was most appealing to it was this was. I don't. We're not using the word rebuild. We're saying this was like I make the comparison to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. That place had good bones. It had good tradition. It just needed a makeover in some areas, and that's where we are right now. We're repurposing, reinventing, you know, um, and, and doing things, remodeling our culture, right? The way we're going to play, the whole deal, uh, to really keep up with the times. Listen, other college coaches, guys who've coached um, a very long time in the college game, have come to the NBA. There's been varying degrees of success. Like most NBA coaches, it's usually built around if you have really good players, you win. If you don't, yeah. you, you're probably going to struggle. But but other people, though, I think different coaches at different times struggled with, you know, in college, you know, the, the coach man. is the you're star. The man. You're the star. And, and, and you, and I think the coaches, and I think you've seen this group that have come whether it was Billy Donovan, Brad Stevens, you know, Jay Wright is a coach who has had the opportunity, may do it someday, mm-hmm. and you fit in this. To me, the common denominator is your coaches who understood that it is about the players. You weren't trying to be necessarily a celebrity, and that's important in this league. But I think with you, there's a different intrigue with this with you. In some ways, I think to people it feels a little bit like an experiment because and, and I and I just think having followed your career the whole way, I heard these things about you. And every every time you jumped up, it would be well, he he may not be able. You know, John runs better stuff than everybody else, but he's not going to be able to recruit at that level. He's going to struggle with that, and he's not going to. And then you'd go to another level, and then you go to Michigan. While he can't, and then you're in the national championship game, and again, and in the Final Four. And I think that's the question again: Will John's style? You know, you're coming in the league at 66 years old. Yeah. You're, most of the guys came younger. It feels like people see this as a little bit of an experiment, uh, different than some of the others. Do, do you feel that? No, I, I don't feel it. I feel exact same way when how many people said when I left LeMoyne to go to Kinesis, what, what are you crazy? Kinesis is the worst program. They won five games. You know, all of a sudden we go to Richmond and then West Virginia was like people were, why did you do that? And then I, I remember a really successful coach it, it, when I, we left West Virginia and we really had it going. Um, I had a, a very successful small college coach said that I got to tell you, that was stu- this is a stupid move <laughs> because Michigan's never coming back. And I was like, that's exactly where I'm going to do it because you think it's stupid. <laughs> and, and so it was I think that there's 
there's some things that just are so uh, transitional to every coach if they just follow them. And, and we have some experience in rebuilding. And it's got there's it's built through coach a lot of coach being humble, embracing the process, getting everybody to understand this is going to take some time. Everyone took time except Richmond. Richmond, we we had a bunch of good seniors, but we've done it before, and we're going to do it again. It's there's no question in my mind, and it was something that at 66 that it was like I feel as good as I've ever felt in my life. You know, when you look at it and you say we might be the next president of the United States, either one of them could be at 75 years old. Those are demanding jobs too. 66 is young in many respects, mm-hmm. as far as the way I I've tried to keep healthy, keep up with the game. Uh, and be very evolved as a coach, evolve as a as a father, evolve as a parent, evolve as a as a person. You have never been an assistant coach, John. You came out of uh, Wheeling Jesuit in '75. You go to New Fane High School. Uh, you go to let's see if I can do Erie, this without, Erie, no no. Uh, see if I I don't have it. Let's say New Fane High School, Erie Community College, Nazareth for one year, right? Right, right. And you can attest I'm not reading right at Nazareth, Lemoyne for nine years. Yeah. Canisius for five years, yep. Richmond for maybe four, five years, and then obviously uh, in West Virginia for five, and Michigan for 12, always a head coach. What what was your blueprint as a coach? Because you're, you're somebody that a lot of people, whether it's your offense, how you do it, people want to emulate. We, we were at practice today, a load of college coaches and people want to come in. You've always had people who want to come. Your offense is not in a book somewhere. You don't hand out the John Beeline playbook or you've not sold your book. I don't know if it's written anywhere. I think it's on, you, it's scribbled on chalkboards all over yeah. the East. What, what was it about having never been an assistant that maybe shaped you in a way that, that, that worked for you? I, I think that what, and I just gave the speech to my team, being a grown up on a farm, that, you, that pruning is a very important part of growth, that you prune trees. They grow back strong. You you, tri- you prune plants. They grow back stronger. And I got as when you're the head coach, uh, Adrian, you get pruned. You go out and you're a, you're a high school coach, you're a junior college coach. You lose games, and you got to find answers. As opposed, when you're assistant coach, you know. Well, you, you, if he would have tried this, it might have worked. But you don't. You take it to heart a little bit. Maybe if it was your scout, but otherwise, it's not. And so I think that you learn the hard way, but it's actually the best way. You know, every loss that, that whether it was Lemoyne and I'm driving these vans back from, you know, Philadelphia mm-hmm. University and Herbie McGee beats you again and you're, you're, you're coming back and it's a four hours in the van through the ice and stone. You, that hurts, but you get better. You, you have to get better. It's survival. And as a result, it's, a, it's just, I think it's made me more prepared for each time that I inherited a program that was going through some adversity. The the thing that, and, and I know your assistants and who went on to be head coaches, it's what their practices look like and what your practices have always been. So you come in the gym, and I think sometimes players, you just come in, you start shooting, and if you walk in the gym to a John Beeline workout or a practice, what you're going to see is jump stops, pivots, <laughs> passing. Um, NBA players are used to, hey, I'm going in the gym. I'm going to get shots up. Yeah. Do, do, do you – is that what Cavalier players walk in? Is it back to those fundamentals yeah. that you taught at Newfane High School? Yeah, once we get to this point where we're all sort of understanding the importance of a good pivot, the importance of an on-time, on-target pass, the importance of just a simple box out, then you could move to the pretty stuff. But we got to be able to do that stuff. You can saw our first pass. I mean – most people do not go to camps anymore, the five-star camp, and learn how to pivot. And then they're playing AAU. They're eight and under playing AAU. They're not learning how to pivot. And the pivoting is one of the most essential things to running any offense. If I said to you, all right, I don't care how your feet are on defense, just guard them, you'd say, man, you're not going to play any defense if you're off balance. It's the same thing on offense. If you don't have balance with your feet, if you do not have that, you cannot run particular offense or even play one-on-one. So it's that same idea. It's got to be on both sides of the ball. But there's fundamental. you got to be in a stance on defense. We need to be in a stance on offense, too, by catching the ball with balance. So uh, when we first did a weave drill, 
And we said, okay, put good spin on the ball. My God, it was like we, we had, uh, you know, that uh, I'm thinking about uh, Hoyt Wilhelm would be way back. We had Joe Necro knuckleball going to every guy. You can't shoot a knuckleball. The guy's open in the corner, man. Hit him with a pass. It's got great spans on time. The shooting numbers will go up when your passing numbers are better. You know, the one thing from any background, anybody who's come into the NBA, you know, and Jeff Van Gundy would talk about this. Yeah. Jeff, you know, speaking of Nazareth College, right? Jeff, you, you coached my last week. I didn't get to coach him. I recruited Jeff <laughs> and he sat in my office and we, he never made a commitment to me. And, but he didn't know at that time, but I was interviewing for the Lemoyne job like in two days or three <laughs> days. I got the Lemoyne job and then, Bill Nelson, who replaced me at Nazareth, finished the recruiting with him. So he ended up going there, and he's a great player. And Nazareth went, went to the well, lead eight, I think. Yeah, well, Jeff. the good news with Jeff is he made a lot of commitments in college. I think he went to four schools, <laughs> right? He's the only guy who ever transferred out of Yale to go to a JUCO. Yeah, it yeah. was in- incredible. He, he was also, at my first game at Nazareth was against Jeff and his father, Bill, at Brockport State. Yep. And the yep. side story is, <laughs> this is how crazy it was. Is that, you know, at places, some of those small schools, we don't have much in facilities or whatever. They, we were the golden flyers. They were the golden something. Their home jersey was gold. Our away jersey was gold. We both showed up with gold <laughs> uniforms. The game was delayed. The game was delayed by half an hour because they didn't have an equipment manager. So all the Brockport guys had their away uniforms. Their away uniforms back at their dorm. We had to wait for the guys to get out there. It was, it was the first game, we, and we actually we we got a good win. We got a good win. Yeah, and so I, I think though, going back to it, that whether it's when Jeff would talk about this when he was a head coach, anybody who came from what felt who looked non traditional, if you didn't play in the NBA, if you didn't have that credibility, yeah. you hadn't come in as a new head coach somewhere, and you had won somewhere else. When it's different, that the common denominator in this league with these players is if you can make them better, mm-hmm. if they can see that you can help them become better players, help them win, they will let you coach them. Was that your belief? Is no, that what yeah, you've seen? And that, that's our hope. And, I, and we're hoping that we, we have some young men's. And I realize this is the tough dynamic I talked about the other day, that this is one of the very few sports where I have a 19-year-old team guy on a team and a 31 on the team, and we're trying to teach them there's going to be slippage from a 31-year-old and stuff that happens over the summer. And then a 19-year-old is really, he, he doesn't know very much at all. But you can't just say, hey, all of a sudden, my 30-year-old guy's got that. He's always going to be in a stance. He's always going to be on time, on target. No, there's slippage there where the other guy has no idea. And somehow you can't wear out the veteran, right? And you got to coach up the young kid. It doesn't have football. Everybody is goes for years. You know, you had a minor league system for the baseball player who was going to be a superstar, but whether it was Trout, whether it was all these guys, they spent time in the minors learning these things. We got to put it all in a flow sport where they got to now share the ball. So we have to get the veterans to believe in us, but we don't have to change. I'm not going to tell um, Delhi, right, boy, Delhi, I, I, you got to change your approach on that floater, right? He's good at it. Uh, but with Darius, I guess say, hey, listen, this, I suggest that's not going to work now because that stuff's going to get beat up by a shot blocker if you don't get more arch on it. Delhi's already proved he can do it. So there's that kind balance there. The, the buy-in that you're going to get, you know, you, you know, you were able to be around for the draft this year, you know, go get a player like Darius Garland and, and, and imagine pairing him with Colin Sexton mm-hmm. in a backcourt that would be together moving forward. And, you know, you drafted three players in the first round and, and you have Colin Sexton who's coming back, you know, for a second year, young player. And then you have Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. And I imagine buy-in, listen, this is a naturally cynical league and Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, college coach, okay, I know more. I've been in the NBA longer than he has. He's never, the buy-in from those guys and selling a program to those guys versus young guys who don't really know any different in the NBA. Yeah. They haven't played for anybody else. What's what's that dynamic like for you walking in well, it's the door? Been, it's been really good so far because I think what helps in that regard is that coaching turnover in the NBA is so – it happens so often that many of them played for different coaches. And that's going to be natural for anybody. Whether I was a, a, a coach who had coached before as a head coach and came now – but I probably got fired, right? If I'm if if I'm there, or I'm a young coach who is getting his first break. There's that you got to have that same buy-in. I guarantee you, I'm not saying to them, 
we're going to do this because it worked at Michigan. We're not telling them that. But we are saying experience tells us we work with the staff, all, all our staff, every decision that we're making right now. And I trump some of them. Is I've asked Tony Lang. I've asked J.B. Bickerstaff, Danny, right, Lindsey Gottlieb. We, we've asked all of them, is this the appropriate thing to do? So I think they see that and they're going to see that consistency. So it's not – the buy-in has not been an issue, but we, we may have to show them stats at the end. You know, that all of a sudden, you know, they won't buy into an approach I want them to use in their jump shot. And then if they're shooting 29% after two months with me not doing anything, I may say, all right, you want to go back to that day when I said you never have spin on your jump shot or you don't have balance with your feet, and maybe we'll buy into it. You can't do worse than 29%. So that's what we're we're sort of working through right now. Let them – let them find out over time that we are going to make them better. They just got to have a trust, which is hard to have. I think about so many guys that the coach used to say to them, you're my guy, man. I can't wait. And all of a sudden the GM trades them for a draft choice like two weeks later. Yeah. They're naturally going to be some distrust, and we got to get through that. You know, we went through – your history of schools and the one common denominator is always a little bit it's high school to junior college to division three two one uh little higher then, one right then canisius and then you know then richmond and then west virginia and then michigan you've always been pulled by the next level was that how you but the I would think the jump in any of those schools is more comparable than what it's going to be like to go from Michigan or any or from Florida when Billy Donovan did it, even mm-hmm. from Butler. Yeah, that jump it's almost a different game. Was it for you? Are you attracted to because of your competitive nature? I want to see how I would do there and then there and then, or was it the intrigue in the NBA game, the the the, the lifestyle? Yeah, I, I think it was the the the. You'd sit there and you'd be at the end of your season and you're watching the NBA playoffs in a seven-game series. And you're just sort of said, now that would be cool to coach in a seven-game series where you got the same team back to back to back and you're trying to get the best out of your players. I think that was very attractive. I think it was also attractive that what what would this stuff is going to work. The better the players, it's going to work better. And, and just... You know, we can get we can get guys that can all shoot, they can all pass. That's the hope that they all going to defend, and we and create this culture of doing it the right way. And so I've I'd, I'd like to prove people wrong at times when they say a oh, college coach can't make it. I'd like they should do some research as how many times that an assistant coach didn't make it, mm-hmm. or a coach who had been fired before didn't make it, and some of them do make it. I think the stats would be pretty. They, they haven't hired many cops. You know, a lot, like Mike Montgomery and Lon Kruger, they were both there, but their cup of coffee was so short yep. because it wasn't them. It was a change in front office philosophy. They weren't failing. They never got a chance to fail. And as a result, um, I don't think there's that huge change that people would think, but it is different. I, I will admit that it's different, and it's different in a good way. And you have to, you know, 82 games and yeah. – you, you're going to lose more and you'll probably lose more games in one year than you've lost in the last, I don't know how many. A long time. <laughs> right? Like, and that's just, that's the reality of it. And that's where you are in trying to, I know you thought about that. Yeah. And you say, okay, we're looking, yeah. this is a, I got a five year deal and we, we've got some, and, and we're looking to see what this looks like in three or four years, which is easy to say in July and August and September. And then it's December and, you're on that West Coast trip, and yeah. it's tough. Um, a lot of guys don't get through that part of it, and they're on to the next one. But you, you have commitment here. You have an organization yeah. that really targeted you and, and, and believes in what you're doing here. But the losing that you know is inherent to it, you think what about? Well, I, I thought I thought about it a lot because I'm not a good loser. I'd never been to it, but I think that's why we've had success because I hate losing I mean, I can go to a, if I went to a casino and I, I won a thousand dollars, it doesn't mean anything. If I lose a hundred, I'm really upset. And that's sort of crazy, but that's, I don't, but I also have really embraced over the last 
maybe 10 years, this growth mindset from, from losses, from adversity, so that we, I can grow from it and get better from it. I used to, I used to say to people all the time, I, I used to not sleep after losses ever because it bothered me so much. And now the mindset after a loss, I'll actually sleep okay because I'll say, if I have already watched the film or I watched it the next morning, I'm going to be a better coach tomorrow because I'm going to learn something in this, in this film. So I'm going to hate every loss that we have, but we have a tremendous commitment from the Frost. They know what we're in here. Mm-hmm. They know that we're rebuilding here and we're trying, we're just going to do this right. And losses are part of that thing. Uh, but I also think that, that we, uh, if with, with the right culture, and and the right attitude. It's going to be a lot. We're gonna we're gonna have so much fun when we win, and we're gonna make these. We're gonna see these small victories in games that I would say, all right, yeah, we we lost the game, and it was a great game, and we lost the game. But did you see this this and this happen? Did you see this guy dive on the front ball? There's never. Do you see a guy that's never taken a charge all year take a charge? Now we're saying, all right, there's small victories enough to keep it going. We'll find positive in everything. I was talking with Karis LeVert last year. I listened to that. It was a great podcast. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, a guy who played for you and, you know, kind of the quintessential John Beeline player, a little over, overlooked in recruiting, develops, uh, with you. Obviously had the injuries, which Mm -hmm. I think if he's healthy, Brooklyn probably wasn't in a position to draft him at 20. And I, we, we were, I think we had this conversation off air. I don't think we talked about it on the pod, but, but I asked him, I said, how do you think John would do in the NBA? What do you think? And he said, I'll tell you, he said, his stuff will work. It'll work. What we did at Michigan, what we do will work. But he's got to get his kind of guys. He's got to have the right guys. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean to you? When you hear one of your players say that, what, what does that mean? Yeah, it, it's me. It, I'm really proud of it because he knows what I valued with people that, that people are going to share the ball. They're going to play together that they were going to put the team first. Very hard to do it. You'd think, oh, you can't do that in the pros. Really hard to do it in college because everybody thinks they're a, they're, a, you know, the sad part about college, some players, not every player, but way too many highly rated players right now think if they go four years to college and they graduate, they're a failure. Mm-hmm. That they didn't go pro early. How sad is that? And, and if they're not a diaper dandy, they're a failure. And so you do have that. In college, and we have to we have to work at that. But I know you get to. I, I think San Antonio is a great example of this. Is I think they have a saying that he's not a spur. He's a spur. He's not a spur. We got to get guys that are going to be Cavaliers, and they're going to be Cavaliers for life because of their experience here. And we're going to find those guys, even when we take a, a chance on a guy who might be might not come in as as having this right attitude, this right mindset uh, in him. He'll look around and everybody else is in this tremendous culture that he'll come around as well. I, I remember when you got to Michigan and you were looking at, you know, when you're at that, you know, the highest level, um, in the Big Ten and you would go out. What I always thought was different about you than a lot of guys at some of the high majors, they, they really just recruited the lists. They recruited top 50 player because no one's going to criticize you for signing that player, right? Like everybody was recruiting them. You know, it's funny when I, I'd spent the year with Bob Hurley at St. Anthony's and did the book and I, and I watched the way schools would come in and recruit their players. And I was there every day and I felt I knew who the better player was watching them every day. And you would see college coaches come in. And they were recruiting a kid because they found out another school was recruiting a kid. And then they started recruiting a kid. And you realize none of them knew why they were recruiting this kid except the others all were too. And you're going, you're missing the one there. Who's yeah, better, right? They're a really good one. Right. And, and, but I think part of that, I always felt, and, and this is why I thought made you unique. You can walk in the gym and you know exactly what one of your players, you know what it looks like and how he fits. And so I can think of some examples of guys at Michigan who think, um, who all of a sudden like they're getting recruited by a few mid-America conference schools and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to sign him. He can play for us. And everyone else goes, but you sort of never accepted. I think that conventional, well, th- there's a safety to just recruiting the highly, you know what it looks like when you see it, right? Well, it's, it's like Rudy Tomjanovich, who was really a tremendous influence on me. Even in the, the short times he'd come visit us in Michigan, he said to me re- re- initially, and it was really, 
it really reaffirmed what I believe. John, you're building a team. You're not amassing talent. You're building a team. And when we, one of the most famous ones that I will take, cause, but I did tell my AD, you're either going to fire me or think I'm a genius. When I gave a scholarship to Spike Albrecht, yeah. right? But we had Trey Burke. We didn't need another guy that was looking for time. I said, Spike, you're going to play eight minutes a half or eight minutes a game. You're good. I'm good. Yeah. He was the right guy for that team. And so, I mean, nobody was recruiting that dude. And he is such a, I mean, he had a tremendous four-year career. Even when Trey Burke was gone, we won with Spike Albrecht in the lineup a lot. So you, you are, you're not just amassing talent and the same thing in the NBA. And I think you've seen that in the NBA where we get a whole bunch of free agents or we, we don't have the right chemistry and you've amassed talent, but you're not a team. And so that's what we tried to put together. This guy, and what is the other thing is we would take a kid based on, look at his body. Is he shaving yet? You know, look at his birthday. We were on the birthday. Karis Levert's birthday is like August 27th. And, and no, he wasn't rated. No, because he was a year, he was a year younger. We'd have guys in Indiana, they were playing 17 and under, and they were going to be 19 years old playing against a 16 year old. Yeah, he looks pretty good. But he's probably as good as he's going to get. So we were able to do that. Uh, the other thing is, is, is was we did not care who we didn't get. Exactly what you're talking about at St. Anthony's. We cared who we got. And so if it, and when a kid would tell me I'm not coming, I would say, fine, I'm good. Let's go. Who are we going to get? And, and, and stop chasing or oh, somebody else is recruiting. Yeah, but did we like him? No, we didn't like him. Then it's okay. You get a guy you don't you you don't like a guy and you get him he might beat you thirty five times a year because he's on your team. Mm-hmm. You get a guy and you make a mistake on him because in in talent but not attitude, right? He's he's not going to beat you like that. He's not going to beat you. And if he goes to an, if he goes to Michigan State, he goes to Iowa State, he might beat you twice a year. He's not going to beat you thirty five times a year if you got him on your own team. So you have a management team here. Kobe Altman's the GM mm-hmm. and. His assistant GM, Mike Gansey, played for you at West Virginia, and I think that was part of your comfort level. You knew, I think, maybe when yeah. Mike came and talked to you about it, that he was telling you the truth, like, yep. here's yeah. what it's going to be like, here's, yeah. and, and that carried weight with you. So you're at the draft combine, and we, I, you had just gotten hired, and you're there, and you're in the, uh, you know, you're meeting with the players and then you start bringing in guys for workouts. And in the end, you end up with three first round picks. And, you know, for anybody who goes from college, anybody, this is great. I can, I can take the guy if we can get him, mm-hmm. but like we decide who we want versus right. trying to. So when you, when you're imagining what it is you want in a player and you have picks and there is this valuable commodity in this league for, you know, Cleveland, you know, if you're going to improve your team, mostly you're going to do it through trade and, and drafting in, in a smaller yeah, market. Yeah. And so w- what is that process like with Kobe Altman and Mike Gansey and a front office who has scouted yeah. the world, who have spent time that you haven't spent and you're watching them in a tighter window? You've always been the GM of your team, right? You, right. right? But, CEO but, every way. Yeah. So I, I think I, we looked at it like this. First of all, I mentioned the guys, and I didn't mean this in a bad way. I said, I spent my, you know, I spent my whole life evaluating talent, 44 years of evaluating talent of who we're going to get a scholarship to. So, so I have done this. I, can I, I want to be part of the draft workouts. I want to have inclusion in things so because that's really important. I'll just give you my advice. Whatever you do, you know, you're in the NBA, but you do what you do. And, when when we had the opportunity, we all flew out to see Darius Garland. It was like I said, "Yep, this 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 guy could be really really special." But when we drafted him, it was like, um, "All right, we got him. Now we're building a team." All right? There may be other guys out there, but what's going to give him the most space? Dylan Windler. He's now he's going to be able to operate. There could have been other guys. That could do a lot of things. And Dylan Windler is going to give that dude space because he's an elite shooter. And now, all right, we got another, we got another pick. And now, all right, we got a space guy. Now let's get a guy that can really get in and, and, you know, a slasher and a, and a athlete and a player. There's Kevin Porter. So, but I'll tell you what, to give them credit, they didn't say, coach, it's all yours, but they didn't say it's all ours. They said, coach, what do you think on every one of them? 
And that was that was huge to me. There's there's a real. I think if I'm doing my research in the NBA, I don't think this is rare. But the good teams have a great partnership between the coaching staff and the front office. I think we have a great partnership here. You know, no, we we talked about the idea of having been a head coach at every level and how you allocate your time in a day. And I, I remember, and you know, you and I got to know each other because uh, a good friend that I went to college with, Mike McDonald, was your assistant at Canisius right. College. He took over for you uh, when you went on to Richmond, and he coached there, um, you know, another decade. And you had a staff that you inherited. You went from Lemoyne to Canisius, and you, you were familiar with the whole staff. One of them was your uh, cousin Dave. Yeah, not yeah, right, yeah. You played for you, and I remember him telling me this very early. And, and we were talking, I remember, gosh, I think I might have been my senior in college. I'd be on the payphone at the end of the hallway in my <laughs> dorm and we would talk about, uh, the first year. And I remember him saying to me, and it was different than what he had experienced in the past. He was a young assistant where then you would say, you know, there's always this thing of being the, you know, there was a merit badge for being in the office for 18 hours, right? And just watch film and, all the time and get in early and stay till the middle of the night and then leave and who no who, however productive that is mm. but we said we were in the office the whole time and i remember him saying to me you know john has me he just tells me go you know later on it was go home for dinner with your family right mm. go, go home spend time come back later that you've always done it in a way that um like the, 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 there had to be some balance in your staff and you wanted to have your you wanted your staff to have balance, yeah, right? Yes, yes, yeah. And it's really important right now that I want that. To, you know, I think that you you have to, uh, with your staff, here's what I've learned from some great people is that um, the you have, to, you have a couple of teams, right? You have your team on the floor and you have your team in your office. And now we have a team of, you know, 15, 16 people support me. You cannot, hey, this is my team. I'm going to coach them. You have You have this team. If you're going to be good, your staff has to be another team that you love up every day, that you have great relationships with. You know their wife's name. You know their kids' names. You are, in, you are showing them great appreciation for their job that they do, and they'll they'll run through the wall for you. Just like if you just coach your regular team, and you just coach them, that's all you do, and you don't have any relationship with them. Good luck. You have to have relationships with your team. I think most good coaches know that. I don't know if everybody knows you got this other team that you better have a good relationship with. And there's a lot of, I hear about it. There's a lot of offices in the NBA or in the college. The man, the other dudes are doing, they're staying all night, you know, because they're afraid the head coach will get mad at them because they're not outworking people. And that's so, that's such nonsense. You got to have that faith. And I think the more the faith that they will go home, they'll do their job. They won't let the coach, that head coach down because they love the environment that they're in. So we try to create that environment in the office that we want to create on the court. This is hot. This is demanding, but this is fun at the same time. Lindsay Gottlieb, uh, one of your assistants, she was the head coach at Cal and made a decision. And, and there's been, you've seen a, a wave of women's uh, assistants come in the league, especially in the last year. But Lindsay was unique among the group. You know, she was a high major head coach who's been to the Final Four, who is making, I think if you go look at the public state records, making, you know, in the neighborhood of 700000 a year, you could go find that. Uh, so was going to take a pay cut no matter what she did and not be a head coach and is a mother mm-hmm. and has a young son, her <laughs> and her husband. And so that's a different conversation to have than, you know, you, you've had a lot of uh, your sisters through the years who were fathers but how did you have to accommodate? What, what was the conversation yeah. like with her where, where she might have said, hey, it might look a little different with me and how this will work, but I'm going to put in the same hours as yeah. everybody else, right? Like, what yeah, was there's that no, like? Yeah, there's no question about that. I trusted that she would put in the, the, her own time. But it's really important. I don't care if it's a mother or a father. They got to be, they got to have time with their kids and that thing. I think one of the things is, as we both know, what, what was the, the, the NBA is a different lifestyle in the summer. That you do have some quality time there, and that you know, I know that our uh, we're probably Lindsay at Cal was uh, again done her practice at six and on the phone by seven, 
and might be talking, you know, till late at night with, with different recruits. I wonder, I, I, I'm sure she's glad right now she's not at Cal and, and has to offer kids, you know, uh, money to come now because of the new law out there. Uh, it, it's, it's really easy that you just, you try and do it. You try not, you're not going to waste your time, but there is times, you know, there's no weekends the whole year, but when you have a day off, you try to make sure that they have that day off or you keep things concise. You do not waste their time and you continue to show them how appreciate, how much you appreciate them. So she's going to be really good. I think what's different about her is she had a genuine interest in the NBA. It just wasn't like, that sounds cool. She's been doing her homework for a few years that she, she knew enough and she just blew us away on the interviews that this was the right gal who could come in. And I, she said some very insightful things in all our meetings. She's got 100% inclusion here. Well, she's in. And uh, you saw her today at, at practice right there. She's got a station over there. She's got, she's running the offense. She's going to be really good for Cleveland uh, basketball. We're lucky to have her. The first time I ever spoke to you, John, and I've mentioned this to you years, um, years after. So this was 1990 and St. Bonaventure was hiring <laughs> a coach from your conference. And I was a student reporter and I guess we got the story and there was this old book. It was called the, if anybody who's in our business knows and you know as an, as a coach, it was called the Coast Sided Directory. It was like, <laughs> you, you didn't go on, there was no internet to go on to find out what somebody's <laughs> office line was. There was this Coast Sided book and it would go through, it would list all the schools and each coach's extension number. And so St. Bonaventure was hiring a coach from Gannon, which was rival, in your league. Big rival. Big rival of yours and, uh, so I said, well, I'm going to call a coach in his conference to, I'm going to do a story on him and say, well, tell me about Tom Chapman. And, uh, so I called you and you couldn't have possibly known, say, I think we just found out a little while. There was no, there was no Twitter alert. There was no, <laughs> the word hadn't made it to Syracuse yet. And I call you and I introduce myself and I said, Hey, coach, I'm super reporter. Say Bonaventure's hired Tom Chapman. Just wanted to get your, you know, sense of him and silence for seven, eight, nine, ten, just silence on the phone. And then you sort of, you were rattled. I might as well have told you there was no Santa Claus. <laughs> like, LeMoyne's going to have to play their games outdoors this no. season. The reaction was just, you were flabbergasted. And I'll never forget, you said, I, I got to call you back. Give me your number. And I said, okay, I gave you the number. And about 20 minutes, maybe a half an hour later, you call me back, composed. Tom's going to do a great job. You know, great. And, and I said, but boy, you were startled. And I asked you years later, and I think... Here you were at Lemoyne, you had been there for maybe nine years, and you couldn't even get an interview for that job at Bonas, and they hired one of your rivals. And I think we talked about after, there was almost like a moment that hit you. It was like, maybe I'm never getting out of, never maybe I'm just going to have to coach at Lemoyne, right? Yeah, it, it really hit me hard because I had grown up, and Tom Chapman really, he, was, he had a great program at Gannon going. But now I grew up what was called Little Three Basketball, Bonnie, Canisius, and Niagara, before Buffalo was number was a Division One. I mean, I just, I was, if I could coach any three of those schools, it was like, I'm good for the rest of my life, you know, and I'd known so many people that, you know, Jim Sadlin had became a great friend over time, but I used to speak at Larry Weiss's camps, you know, my, my uncle Joe used to be the coach at Canisius, and then I grew up watching Calvin Murphy, I kept a green scorebook, you remember those scorebooks, yeah, yeah, yeah. to every one of Calvin Murphy's games, his sophomore, junior, senior year, and went to the freshman games, because one time there's 11,000 people at a freshman game between Lanier and Calvin Murphy in the Memorial Auditorium. But you were in, at this point in your career, you were in your 30s, you yeah, were pretty was, far along in your yeah, I was, coaching. I was, yeah, I was probably 30 five at the time i didn't get the canisius job till 39 and so i was uh yeah that that, that hit me pretty good i mean that hit me that this is never going to happen is it your appreciation for where you are and you think most coaches now everyone's anointed and and there may never be another coach in the nba who's had your because <laughs> you know what you can't get hired in college you know, like the path is different and, and the guys, people in division one don't want to hire coaches from division two. That's rare. It's very, still fairly rare. rare yeah, you know? Yeah. It was crazy how that all happened. And I think the other thing that will never happen is I've only had an agent one time. And that was like, after I got the job, I said, I better have somebody do my contract. That's I've never had an agent call on my behalf the whole time. And that's why some of the NBA jobs were so secretive. Nobody knew what was going on because I'd never had an agent who was out blabbing it somewhere. 
Uh, now, it's probably not going to happen, and I don't mean that in the wrong way that I'm special. I mean, I am the luckiest <laughs> in the world that these things lined up, that it was just, you know, guy, maybe a guy turned down a job, and I ended up getting it. And I remember I didn't get the Colgate job one year, and I that was the lowest I've ever been. They had won like one game the year before, and I was we had won twenty four or something at at um, at Lemoyne, and I didn't get the job, and I was just like I asked for too much money. I think I asked for fifty grand for the to be the head coach there, and it was way out of their ballpark. And I was making I was just making at, at Lemoyne. I think I was making twenty five thousand, but I was making like fifteen thousand off the camp. So I said, hey, I ought to get a five thousand dollar raise. I'm moving in. I didn't get the job. And uh, it devastated me. So I didn't think I was ever going to make it, but it was luck. There was a lot of luck involved in this to go along the way, and here it is. And, and I've always sensed, too, that you, the guys who really identify with you, the small college guys, that you you represent something to every guy who's at that level of basketball, that you're one of them, right? <laughs> Have you felt that from no, guys No, I feel that without question. And I'll tell you what, Woj, this is not breaking news to anybody. There's coaches coaching high school, junior college, division three, division two, that every bit as good as me or any, so many of the great coaches in the world. They just didn't choose to move or they weren't lucky or something happened in their life where they just got, they got out of it. You know, they changed jobs. They weren't, there's some Catholic school coach somewhere not making any money and he finally had to feed the family so they had to get out of coaching. So there's, there's a lot of people out that are really good, but I do feel I've heard it several times of the small college coaches that are saying, dang, this is, a, this is really a cool story, right? Cause you're representing all of us out there as a, as a small college coach, uh, that actually has, has had success at, at other levels. Yeah, I remember, and, and I think this goes back to Jeff Van Gundy when he got the Knicks job, and I think he tells a story. He sat down with Dave Checkets, and he said, I'm not sure you're one of the best 30 coaches in the world. I hope you are. I don't know if you are. But what we are sure about is these are the best 400 players in the world. And that basically, you know, it's it's a it's a privilege to get the yeah. chance because, you know, like you, yeah. Stan Van Gundy would always, a great point. and Stan would always talk about, there's a coach at University of Bridgeport, Bruce Webster. He kicked my ass every time. Yeah. Oh no, without right? question. And, and, and he goes, and he goes, he's got to be wondering what is Stan Van Gundy doing in the NBA? Yeah, yeah, I never yeah, lost no, to that guy. Without, without, I, I just hired on my staff Artie Liptowski, coached at Franklin Pierce, right? Coached at AIC, and I'm 0-2 against him. <laughs> two overtime losses, and he's right in my office right now. He's got it on me. Yet I might be a 1-0 against Bobby Knight. I'm 0-2 against Artie Liptowski. <laughs> Uh, and so it's it's like a crazy, crazy thing that uh, there's so many good coaches. There's so many good coaches. They do it different ways, and they don't have the resources. And uh, I'm very appreciative of being in here, I think, because of that. Because I was the one selling the popcorn, sweeping the floor after the games, doing the laundry, taking the guys home after a practice that allows me to now realize, wow, I, I'm lucky. I'm really fortunate. If you fulfill your contract, if you're 70 years old mm-hmm. and you're in your fifth year here or 71 and, and you say, okay, I've, I'm ready to, maybe we're going to hand it to JB Bakersaf, yeah, right, whatever right. it looks like. What to you will success look like? I think that we will have great crowds down there for every game at the new Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. We're in the playoffs. We're, we're, we're in the playoff hunt and competitive in the playoffs. But we also have a culture that everybody's talking about. That people want to come to Cleveland to play because there's a development process. Even, even everybody, a guy wants to come here to be video because he knows this is where people get better. Mm-hmm. A free agent wants to come here because he wants another contract. A first rounder wants to come here because this is the best way for him to get a great second contract. If we're known for all those things, then I, I know we did our job. You know, it's hard. Cleveland's won one championship in any sport in a long long time and you should you, that should be a good ultimate goal but i think to get this thing right so that the the cavaliers the culture the traditions aren't yo-yoing back and forth from year to year depending on players it's depending on the substance that we have in this office the front office appreciate dan gilbert appreciates it 
I'm going to say, I'm good, man. I did my <laughs> job because I don't really, really, I just don't. It's, it's all about getting people to be at their best as opposed to winning some championship because the, uh, Bill Walsh in that book is a great book, right? Right. The winning will take care of itself if you establish those things. So I'm so focused on that. If we get that done, we'll win and I'll be satisfied. Last thing you, you brought that up that I, in your experience, as you get toward closer to the end than the beginning, the things you value as a head coach and you say, well, can I win a championship? I mean, if I told you, yeah, hey, if you stayed at Michigan in two years, you might have won a national championship. You came awfully close versus what you just talked about, like leaving something here that building a foundation and it may not result. Maybe it takes to your last year yeah. of the deal to get in the playoffs that that's something you value more than you might have at different stops along the way. Is it change? No, no without quite. No, I would really value that, but I, it would be. You know, when you get, you, we get all done. If we, in, at the end, if you can change people's lives, including everyone, they, they sit and say, man, that, that coaching staff made my life better, right? From the front office to everybody, you, that they get, they became better people after that. And that's the real measure, I think, why we all coach. That's why we, I, I just, I'm just a seventh grade social studies teacher and I just wanted to give to others. And, you know, I grew up with this incredible blessed life of, you know, eight brothers and sisters, great family. And then just feel so blessed what people gave to me and you're just trying to give back what you know, give them all the knowledge that you want. It's just so good to be in this situation where I think we can really, as a staff, make a difference. And if we can really make a positive difference, then it's great. People always say, you know, I, I would ask my my team, oh, coach, we want to win this. When last time we went to the national championship, we want to win this championship game for you. We really want it for you. No, I don't. I don't care about the national championship. I care did we maximize your potential during your time. That's what I care about, and I think that's happened an awful lot. John, thanks for doing this. Good luck, and good luck to your Cardinals. I know oh, you man, might big game. You yeah. might catch a couple <laughs> innings today. That the Buffalo Bills. I, you know, I got to be careful now because I got the Browns, I got the Indians, and I will root for those teams. They're not in the same division, but my, but the St. Louis Cardinals. That's my hobby, and I and I love it. I love it. So thanks, Woj, for having me on. Great, thank you, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, Cleveland Cavaliers coach John Beeline. As always, you can listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your pods. And of course, be sure to check out the Low Post with Zach Lowe, as well as Brian Windhurst and the Hoop Collective. We'll catch you next time.